As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. In the 19th century, as America began its expansion into more remote lands yet to be established, settlers in the South relied heavily on the use of rivers. These waterways not only provided them a link to cities where they could sell and gather supplies, but also other states, creating economic opportunities for otherwise isolated communities. As a result, Paddle steamers became one of the most popular means of river travel. These early steamboats burned coal or wood to power steam engines, which set large paddle wheels in motion, propelling the boat forward. Two different types of paddle steamers were used. A stern wheeler, which has one or more paddles in the back of the boat, and a side-wheeler, which has a paddle on either side and nothing in the back. And as can be expected, these unique and often luxurious ships became icons of the prosperous time. Yet the reality of paddle steamers was one fraught with danger, sometimes accompanied by the tragic loss of life. One such tragedy has become the basis of one of Alabama's most well-known legends. The appearance of a ghostly ship engulfed in flames on the Tombigbee River. A ship once known for its luxury, but whose presence today is believed to be an omen for disaster. Her name is the Eliza Battle. My name is Brandon Schecksnyder, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. Steamboats were a common sight on Alabama's Tom Bigby River 
during the 1800s. Although, the important waterway's hardships were often difficult to overcome. The paddle steamer by the name the Alabama was the first to make an attempt in 1818, but she lacked the power to navigate the Tombigbee's currents. So it wasn't for several more years, between 1820 and 1823, that the steamboat cotton plant became the first to successfully navigate it, traveling from Mobile up to the Warrior River and on to Tuscaloosa. This new steamboat carried nine passengers from Mobile before returning with 330 bales of cotton. Unfortunately, accidents on the river were an accepted part of life. A river with water too high could cause tree-bearing banks to cave in, creating new obstructions. While the low water of summer uncovered the obstacle of sandbars and submerged logs, but without a doubt, the most feared hazard was fire. Given that steamboats burn wood or coal to produce the steam necessary to propel the ship, combined with the fact that they hauled the highly flammable cargo of cotton, cottonseed, and cottonseed oil, it was no surprise that fires became fairly common along the river. But in the history of Alabama steamboats, there is no more tragic fire and sinking than that of the great and luxurious Eliza Battle. The Eliza Battle steamboat was a side-wheeled paddle steamer with a wooden hull built and launched from New Albany, Indiana in 1852 weighing approximately 315 tons. But what truly made her so well known was that she was one of, if not the most luxurious riverboats in Alabama's waters during the mid-19th century. Her superiority was so well known that cotton planters and their families often took advantage of the experience of traveling the river aboard her combining business and pleasure while accompanying their cotton to market in Mobile. The ship had a, quote, regular weekly packet traveling up and down the Tombigbee River, carrying freight and passengers between Mobile and Warsaw. So every Tuesday evening at 5 p.m., she left Mobile and over the next two days, the steamboat made nine stops, including places like Demopolis and Gainesville, before arriving in Warsaw at 8 a.m. Thursday morning. Then, two hours later, the Eliza Battle once again left port to head downriver for her return trip, making 11 stops before arriving back in Mobile on Saturday night. So regular was this route that the Eliza Battle's itinerary was published in the local paper. 
Yet in spite of the ship's superiority over its contemporaries, this luxurious steamboat was still just like others, no stranger to accidents. Although, in retrospect, the Eliza battle had an eerie connection to fire, one that would ultimately cause her demise. The first of several accidents occurred in 1854. While traveling downriver to Mobile, the Eliza Battle was loaded with cotton bales that suddenly caught fire. Fortunately, the crew was able to extinguish the blaze with the steamer's fire pumps, saving the boat. But then, in April 1855, the ship's cargo once again became consumed in flames. This time, after the cargo was deposited in a warehouse at Newport Landing. The Tom Bigby's water level was low that day, forcing the steamer to halt her regular trip and unload the cargo until the river rose again. But in the process, the warehouse burned to the ground and the freight was lost. That same year on November 20th, the Eliza Battle also ran aground on the Lower Tom Bigby, just below Black Bluff, at an area known as Coombs Bar. Cotton bales were transferred to a different steamer, the Jenny Bell, in an effort to lighten the ship's load. Yet the Jenny Bell also ran aground, forcing a third steamer to take on the freight. Yet this ship, named Sally Spann, went ablaze during its trip to Mobile. In spite of these tragedies, the Eliza battle continued to operate on the river for several more years. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Y'all, I want to take a quick minute to tell you about one of my favorite nonprofit organizations here in Middle Tennessee. It's called Poster Nashville. Now, this organization supports people during times of housing or medical crises by providing compassionate, temporary care for their pets. That's right. Poster helps secure loving homes for beloved little furballs when their human companions are going through things that might otherwise cause them to have to give them up. 
But since Poster began back in 2020, they've been able to reunite nearly 250 pets with their loving pet parents after they were able to secure housing, keeping families together through tough times. Of course, y'all, I have to say from personal experience, it's been an awesome program to be around. My kids and I have been fortunate enough to hang out with some of the pups. And trust me, what Poster is doing through a devoted network of volunteers is absolutely heartwarming. So if you'd like to help, Poster is in the middle of their annual fundraiser right now, trying to hit a goal of $20,000. And it would mean the world to me if you'd consider helping us get there. All you got to do is visit southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. That's right, southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. What would become the final voyage of the Eliza Battle was supposed to be a gala affair for the wealthy and socially prominent members of the area. For weeks, the party had been promoted with handbills and advertised in newspapers. And in addition to the regular luxuries afforded to passengers, the event included two bands who provided continuous music in the ballroom, while the ship was adorned with colorful flags and draped bunting on every deck. Glowing lanterns were used to beautifully illuminate the ship at night, and the onboard calliope played the latest tunes, welcoming celebrations at each landing along the way. But the day of departure was an unusually warm, though rainy February day. Passengers boarded the ship, dressed in the finery befitting their social standing, and it is noted that most ladies were wearing full skirts and little hats, while also carrying parasols as protection against the sun's reflection off the water. Then, after the cargo of cotton bales were successfully loaded aboard her, the Eliza Battle pulled away from the wharf and the bands began to play. Space was limited as the ad campaign for the trip was so successful that with each stop the steamer made, more and more people came aboard. And despite the dance tunes played by the band, the ship became so crowded that dancing became difficult, with the final amount of passengers nearing a total of 60 and a crew of about 45. Yet despite this festive mood, the weather conditions became grimmer by the hour. While the temperature at the start of the trip was considered warm for February, it soon began to drop exponentially as a bitter wind began blowing from the northeast, followed by thunderstorms mixed with sleet and snow. Within just two hours, the temperature had dropped about 40 degrees. So frigid had the night become that it was said that the water that spilled onto the deck of the steamboat froze almost immediately and that large icicles hung in the paddle boxes surrounding the paddle wheels. 
The boat's pilot, Daniel Epps, grew increasingly concerned as the weather changed. The night's storm caused the already high Tom Bigby to flood its banks. And with the steamer carrying extra passengers that night, the Eliza battle was heavier than normal, making it more sluggish and difficult to steer, occasionally causing the ship to veer away from the river's current completely, forcing it through the boughs of submerged trees before the ship's course was corrected. As a result, with each jolt of submerged trees or jerks in the fight to stay on the river's current, bales of cotton went overboard. Then, at about 1 a.m. on March 1st, 1858, the calliope of another steamer could be heard in the distance. The steamboat warrior grew near. The two ships passed each other successfully, although some accounts of the night say that as the warrior passed, sparks were coming from its smokestacks. Unfortunately, the passengers and crew of the warrior were the last to see the Eliza battle afloat. An hour after the two ships passed, the sound of music was halted by cries of fire. Somehow, the cargo of cotton bales had been consumed in flames. Crew members rushed to the stern of the steamer and frantically tried to put out the blaze, and Captain S. Graham Stone, one of the most popular captains on the river, was called to survey the situation, which he did before entering the ballroom to announce to passengers, quote, Ladies and gentlemen, the boat is on fire. Though Captain Stone attempted to calm the passengers, it was to no avail. Chaos ensued. Women screamed as people rushed about to locate the lifeboats. But the lifeboats, located on the hurricane deck, quickly became cut off by flames before being engulfed themselves. Alerts and warnings of the dangers were swiftly issued to passengers resting in private cabins. One unidentified passenger who survived the events of that night was quoted in the Gainesville Independent. The cabin doors burst open and every sleeper starts to his feet as the word fire, fire, fire shrieked in his ear. No time to dress. The flames are spreading everywhere. Save yourselves. Although the fire was first contained in the rear of the ship, the almost gale-force winds blowing from the north caused the flames to spread quickly. So much so that even before most people had reached the deck, the fire had already jumped beyond the cotton bales and reached the engine room, some cabins, and the gangway. Within minutes, the ship itself was engulfed in flames. The raging fire in the rear of the steamer forced passengers towards the bow of the ship, but in the rush to escape, most were ill-prepared for the freezing night air, either still dressed in their party finery or in their night clothes. Decisions had to be made quickly, 
So some passengers began to create makeshift rafts out of bits of lumber, while others threw cotton bales into the water and attempted to climb on top. And still others dared to dive straight into the freezing water of the Tombigbee River. As chaos reigned on deck and in the water, Captain Stone ordered the pilot, Daniel Epps, to drive the steamer into the riverbank. As if successful, some would be able to escape without having to be submerged in water. At first, Epps was only able to maneuver the boat into the flooded forest on the east bank of the river, giving some the opportunity to jump from the boat into the trees where they could cling to safety. Unfortunately, as Epps attempted to turn the ship into a better position for escape, he found that the tiller rope, which connects the wheel to the steering device, had burned through. Now, without power or the ability to steer, the Eliza battle was at the mercy of the wind and the river's current. The crew could do nothing as the steamboat veered around the trees before drifting awkwardly back toward the current. Captain Stone had initially ordered his men to rescue the women and children first, but as the flaming boat continued to drift downriver, the crew began working tirelessly to get everyone off the boat. One anecdote claims that amidst the chaos, Captain Stone found a small child dressed in their night clothes. So he took a blanket, soaked it in the freezing water, and then placed it on a burning cotton bale until it was only steaming. The captain then wrapped a coat around the child, handed them to their mother, and set the two onto the bale, hoping they would float to safety. As for Captain Stone himself, he was the last living person on board the ship, remaining until the steamboat was completely surrounded by flames, only escaping by pushing a plank into the river to serve as a raft. Tragically, the night's terror was not over. After the burning hulk of the Eliza battle floated downstream, darkness began to cover the passengers still in and on the river. Fortunately, the glare from the flames and the cries of survivors alerted the citizens of a nearby town who rushed to the riverbank to offer assistance. Bonfires were built along the bank to help light rescue efforts and provide warmth to survivors. A local named James Eskridge was the only one on the scene with any kind of boat, so he used his skiff to navigate the undergrowth of the darkness, successfully saving as many as 100 people that fateful night. By dawn, a crowd of local planters were on hand as well, accompanied by their enslaved men, who built rafts that could be guided through the trees along the river with push poles. Later, these same enslaved men would be the ones to make coffins for the dead. 
Tragically, there is no exact number as to how many bodies were pulled from the Tom Bigby River, and no clear account as to exactly how many died on that fateful voyage. But what is known is that most of the casualties came not from the flaming steamboat, but rather from the freezing river. Yet each time the story has been told or published in a newspaper, the number of dead seem to increase. On March 3rd, Mobile Papers ran the story under the titles Terrible Steamboat Disaster and The Great Calamity. These accounts reported that 29 people, including 15 passengers and 14 crew, were killed. Then, a March 6th edition of Gainesville Independent reported 65 had died. This account also published the names of some of the victims. Then later, a congressional report looking into the cause of the catastrophe reported 29 dead. However, to this day, none of these numbers can truly be verified. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. For those survivors pulled from the river, many sought refuge at the home of Rebecca Coleman Pettigrew, who converted her home and outbuilding into a makeshift hospital. Then, about 36 hours after the fire, the steamboat Magnolia arrived on scene to take survivors on to Mobile. It was there in Mobile that a committee of local inspectors was formed to determine the circumstance surrounding the disaster. After the group met with survivors, it was determined that the crew of the Eliza Battle were not to be blamed 
In fact, quite the opposite. Quote, the officers of the ill-fated steamer are deserving of the highest commendation for their noble and untiring exertions on behalf of the sufferers, and especially Captain Stone, the master who, after using every exertion to save the passengers under his charge, was the last man who left the burning wreck. Of course, the catastrophe of the Eliza battle immediately made national and international news. In the days, weeks, and months following the fire, articles about the event could be found throughout the United States and in Europe, and even as far away as New Zealand. But to this day, no one can say with exact certainty why the Eliza battle burned that night. It is largely believed that the flames were the result of the sparking chimney from the warrior, which passed the steamer only an hour before the alarm rang out. Although it is also possible that there was a spark from the Eliza Battle's own chimney, which set her ablaze. Yet there is one story of an alternate cause. Published in the February 27, 1975 edition of Alabama's Choctaw Advocate, it tells the story of a confession of a dying Irishman to a priest in New York City in 1912. This Irishman had been a crew member of the Eliza Battle, and he, along with another crewman, conspired to rob a rich planter who came aboard with a large handbag full of money. After the planter locked the bag in his stateroom and joined the party, the two men waited until the steamer stopped at Beckley's Landing, broke into the planter's room, and took the money. To cover their tracks, they set fire to the mattress. Then, just as the boat was prepared to cast off again, the two men slipped off and disappeared, leaving the men richer and the Eliza battle to its fate. Supposedly, this confession was confirmed, but few believe in the legitimacy of the tale of this dying Irishman, given how the flames spread as the blaze started not in the staterooms, but among the cotton cargo. Today, the remains of the Eliza battle rest in two halves in about 28 feet of water at the bottom of the Tombigbee River. Though at one point, timbers of the ship became visible when the water was low. Now, the remains rest entirely beneath the sand. Yet legend says that the boat occasionally resurfaces. According to Catherine Tucker Wyndham's 13 Alabama Ghosts and Jeffrey. For years afterwards, people who lived close to the river, who loved her and understood her moods, said the ghost of Eliza Battle still plied the Bigby's waters. On stormy nights, they said they saw the great streamer rise up out of the troubled water. The boat, they said, was ablaze from bow to stern, 
so brightly lighted that the name Eliza Battle could be read plainly on even the darkest nights. Some along the river have also claimed to hear the music of the calliope playing in the background, while others report hearing the agonizing cries and screams for help as the wind blows around them. According to many, the Eliza battle is still trying to finish her ill-fated trip. The ghost ship has purportedly been seen most often by crewmen of tugs and barges that still travel down the Tom Bigby. But according to them, the flaming ship is an omen of tragedy, a reminder that the treacherous Tom Bigby will claim their lives just as it claimed the lives of those aboard the Eliza Battle. As a result, it is said that some witnesses to this ghost ship come ashore permanently to find safer jobs away from the river. As recently as 1997, Alan Brown, author of The Haunting of Alabama, reported that a member of the Coast Guard, which operates the locks in Demopolis, claimed that every February, their office received calls reporting the sighting of a burning hulk of a steamboat on the river. There is no shortage of ships and lives lost in the history of travel through Alabama's waterways. So much so that most of the names of those ships and lives have been largely lost to history. Yet the legacy of the Eliza battle lives on. Rufus Ward, author the Tom Bigby River steamboats said it best. Part of the reason for the perpetuation of the legend of the Eliza battle is in the frightening circumstances of its lost by fire on a freezing, flooded river. Just such an incident from which legends are made. My name is Brandon Schecksneider and you've been listening Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independently produced podcast created by siblings Brianne and Brandon Schecksneider with the support of listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to receive even more content, including ad-free episodes, head over to our Patreon page today. The link is in the show notes. Lucky Lady Shacks. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast the place where history's forgotten events 
heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.